Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. This time, UK medics speak out against the attack on Gaza. On the 7th of October, Hamas launched a series of horrific attacks on Israel, killing more than 1,400 people and taking more than 200 hostages. Israel, in retaliation, has killed more than 4,300 people in Gaza, many of them civilians, in a series of airstrikes, thought to be the prelude to a ground invasion. Humanitarian aid has started going into the territory after several days of siege, and the International Committee of the Red Cross is now calling for medical personnel and surgical teams to be allowed in too. We're going to hear from two people with extensive knowledge of Gaza and its medical system. Dr Deborah Harrington, a consultant obstetrician based in Oxford, who's been visiting Gaza since 2017, and Dr Omar Abdelmanan, who has made several visits to Gaza as well and the West Bank. So welcome both. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Firstly, Deborah, if you just wouldn't mind, just tell us what you know of Gaza prior to this horrible current conflict. So I have had the privilege to visit as part of a group of doctors who travel to Gaza each year to teach medical students and trainee doctors The group's made up of doctors from a number of different specialties, obstetrics, which is what I am, surgeons, physicians, paediatricians, intensivists and general practitioners. We go to different hospitals while we're there, do bedside teaching and tutorials, simulation training, and we hold other training sessions for the teaching fellows. So we do a kind of train the trainers. We meet lots and lots of medics during the time that we are there. And Omar, what about you? Thank you for having us, first of all, Adrian, on the podcast. So I've been going to the West Bank since 2011. I actually started going as a medical student in my final year at university. So we, myself and two of my colleagues who are actually currently involved in our group, set up an educational link between a Palestinian medical school in East Jerusalem called Al-Quds University Medical School, which is, I think, one of the first Palestinian medical schools there and Oxford University. This is ongoing, actually. It's called Oxpar Medlink. We were co-founders and then have handed it over to a fantastic team who continue to run this. Some of our team members, including Professor Nick Maynard and some of the surgeons, have been on separate occasions to actually perform surgery and help with some of the complex cases as well. So it's both an educational link. It's a teaching opportunity, but it's also a chance to collaborate on a research and scientific and clinical basis which, to be honest with the people in Gaza, and this is really important in terms of context, these are people who have been under siege in a blockade since 2007 when Hamas took over and the Israeli government started this full siege, air, sea and land. So they have very little contact with the outside world. The reception we have is, and I'm Egyptian by origins, so I have sort of an understanding of you know generosity of uh, especially people in the Arab world when you come and visit them. But this is on another level. I mean, when we go there, I have never felt more at home in a place than I have in Gaza. I feel more at home in Gaza than I do in the UK, and I call the UK my home. That's actually the reality of the situation. In a normal time, if any time in Gaza can be considered normal, given the yeah. ongoing nature of the conflict, what is medical treatment like? What are the hospitals like if you need access to any kind of medical help? From a general healthcare system, 
let's say it's pretty basic in the sense that they are doing what they can with limited resources. They have incredible doctors, incredible surgeons who are just as talented as anyone who I've trained with or been mentored by in Oxford or in London or in the UK, but they are struggling. They are working in a situation with limited resources. They often have electricity cuts, so normal peacetime, and I would never call it peacetime because the situation there is always extremely tense, but in normal times, they will have two to three hours of electricity cuts per day. What that means is their backup generators in the hospitals have to kick in to keep patients alive on ventilators. They are short on drugs that help save patients' lives, whether it's children with cancer, adults with cancer, chronic diabetic patients. We're talking about a healthcare system that's on its knees on a day-to-day basis. And then on top of that, there's now an escalation. There's a mass migration, a mass movement of almost a million people from the north to the south. That is unprecedented. The only time I can think of a similar situation is probably Syria in the last 20 years, this mass displacement of a large number of people. So you're putting on a healthcare system that's already on its knees, incredible pressures and mass casualties, injuries that are horrific. And some of them come from carpet bombing that we've seen the Israeli government subjecting the Gazan people to. The situation cannot continue. I would absolutely agree that even before this conflict, that from maternal health and reproductive health, the services are incredibly stretched. There are four kind of essentials, if you like, to reduce maternal death. And those are that you have good prenatal care. So expectant mothers need their antenatal visits to pick up any complications with their own health or their baby's health that they need skilled birth attendants with an emergency backup, emergency obstetrics to address major causes of maternal death. And those are things like hemorrhage, sepsis, unsafe abortion or hypertensive disorders or obstructed labour. And they need care after birth. As you can imagine, those are massively impacted at the moment, not just access to healthcare generally, but particularly for pregnant women at the moment is almost impossible There are 50,000 women who are currently pregnant and there are 5,000 due to give birth in the next month. And unfortunately, lives don't stop just because there's a conflict. You know, women will go into labour. They will have miscarriages, whether there's a war or not. What they have to face is absolutely unbearable. They won't be able to access a birth unit because of the difficulties in just generally moving around. They might give birth alone without a midwife without electricity, without clean water or sanitation. You know, I'm a doctor, but I'm also a mother. Can you imagine how frightening that must be? And then for those women who do make it into hospital, maternity services are definitely ongoing and they're being delivered by the dedicated staff that are there. And I heard from a senior obstetric colleague at Shifa Hospital yesterday, and that's the biggest unit in Gaza. It's the biggest maternity unit. But of course, it's also the biggest hospital dealing with trauma at the moment. And just to put it in context, there are usually about 17,000 births there per year. And in the UK, it's typical to be sort of three to 5,000. So you can see on a scale pre this, it was already incredibly busy. And what obstetrician told me is that the doctors and midwives, they haven't gone home. They're living at the hospital. Their families are camping in the hospital grounds. And the hospital is overwhelmed by trauma cases. So the operating theatres are constantly in use. 
And that means that if you're a woman in labour and you need an emergency cesarean section for life-threatening reasons to yourself or to your baby, it's a case of delaying with the consequences that might have or where they can, they're transferring women out to other hospitals. But those other hospitals don't have electricity and supplies and all the things that we need. There is a shortage of absolutely everything, key medications, They're even having to wash and reuse their gloves in some cases. The real message is that women and babies are going to die for want of basic maternity and newborn care and simple life-saving medications that we just take for granted to manage hemorrhage and infection, which unfortunately in obstetrics can happen, just aren't available. They're just not there. And Women and children, we know it's a fact that in conflict, they bear the brunt of death. And that's definitely happening in Gaza. About 60% of deaths or those injured are mothers or children. And the consequences of if a mother dies, it's not just the tragedy of that death there and then. It's the ripple effects. There's really good data on what that does to the life chances of that woman's family her surviving children, their life chances are impacted for years. Amor, it was impossible to imagine that the attack on October the 7th wouldn't be met with some kind of retribution by Israel. The attack has been compared to 9-11 and the people who died were in many cases defenceless. They were not seeking to pose any kind of military threat to Gaza. And they were civilians who were killed in cold blood in horrific ways. But when you hear that statistic that 60% of the people in Gaza who have died are women and children, it poses the question about whether the response has been proportionate and whether it's targeted people who had nothing to do with those attacks by Hamas. So the first thing I would say, Adrian, is those attacks on the 7th of October were abhorrent and I fully condemn any act of violence towards any human being. At the end of the day, uh, human life is a human life and it's a tragedy for those families in Israel and my thoughts and prayers go out to them. Having said that, the the situation in Gaza, as you correctly said, and as Dr. Harrington pointed out, half of the population of Gaza under the age of 18, the density of the population in Gaza, the actual density of people living within that tiny area. And for context, I've seen recently maps of Manhattan being shown kind of alongside Gaza. And Gaza is actually more densely populated than Manhattan per square meter. Manhattan, you know, is one of the most densely populated metropolitan areas in the world. So if you carpet bomb and if you use tactics of essentially bombing anything within sight, then you are going to kill civilians. So the idea of targeted bombing within Gaza is fanciful, to be frank. I don't know what a proportionate response means. For me, any sort of violence is abhorrent from any side. I'm a humanitarian. I'm a doctor who tries to save patients. So for me, the idea that there would be continued escalation rather than an actual ceasefire, which is what we are all calling for, primarily as human beings, but also as medics, as humanitarians, you know, this situation continues to escalate. It's almost like we are saying there needs to be a ceasefire, there needs to be humanitarian aid going in. And the governments or the statements that are coming out are almost nullifying that and saying, no, there needs to be further escalation. 
a ground invasion, more bombing, bombing a hospital. The attacks on Al-Hilal Hospital in the last week were absolutely atrocious. You had thousands of people sitting, as Dr. Harrington mentioned, in the grounds of the hospital, sheltering women and children who had fled from residential areas where they had been bombed to Christian hospital with the hope that they would be safe. And yet that was attacked. You will be aware the responsibility for that attack is strongly disputed. You'll know that the Israeli government has said that it was not responsible for that attack. So we, we can't say with certainty what the source of that attack i'm not i'm not i as you may have heard i've not actually said who is behind this because i'm not a politician an appropriate investigation needs to be done to find out who was behind that because that amounts to a war crime attacking a hospital from any side is a war crime that's un that's that's the geneva convention essentially so the reality is what happens regardless of who is behind this 500 and i've seen reports of 800 to 1000 with 1000 missing Women, children and men were killed in an attack on a hospital, caught in the crossfire of two warring governments. At the moment, the statistic is one child is dying every 15 minutes in Gaza. That's the reality. If you look at 1,200, 1,300 children have died since this conflict began. And numerous more are orphaned. I have seen heartbreaking videos sent to me directly from doctors on the ground in Gaza, sent to our group because we're a team that's dealing with this and trying to put up their messages. I've seen pictures and videos of children waking up in the intensive care with no family, breaking down into tears and being completely heartbroken. And as a pediatrician, as a father, as a humanitarian, that tears my heart apart just thinking about that. So that's the current situation, I guess, that we're dealing with. And there needs Mm. to be a stop to this violence. That's what we're calling for. Ceasefire and humanitarian aid corridors to open up. We can talk about the amount of aid that's going in, Frankly, it's it's not a drop in the ocean. It's a slap in the face. It's honestly a slap in the face to the Palestinian people and the people in Gaza because any aid is welcome, but 20 trucks is just not good enough. We have 200 trucks to 300 trucks going in on a daily basis prior to this escalation. They've been allowed 20 trucks to go in with no fuel, which is actually the key commodity, fuel and water, and the two key commodities they need to go in. As Dr. Harrington mentioned, the supplies of medicines within Gaza are exhausted. So I've been speaking to the Norwegian doctors who are sitting, waiting on the ground in Cairo. It's a team that go in every year to help when there's been escalations of violence in kind of normal times. And they've told me they have reports that all the private stockpiles of medicines, fluids, blood products, basic medical supplies are completely exhausted. And the Ministry of Health of Gaza sent out yesterday to our group a list of the key components that need to be going in. And these include anesthetic drugs. These include simple painkiller medications. There are patients currently being treated, operated on with no anesthesia. This is unprecedented. This happened in medieval Britain. But the idea that a surgeon would need to operate without anesthetic and with a phone being used as a lamp or a torch to allow him or her to see what's happening uh it's 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 horrific that's the only word i can use to describe it i concur with absolutely everything that omar says and one of the things that we're hearing from medics in the hospitals is literally the dire situation that they're dealing with and i think it's important but also quite difficult to convey how horrific that is 
the effects of having a lack of electricity, of running water, of medications that you need for life-saving care, for the emergency care, let alone the care that just goes on and on and on because it doesn't stop. And the medics there are dealing with mass casualties on a scale that they've never had to deal with before. Surgeons are having to make really heartbreaking decisions. I can't imagine being in the same position, but having to decide who to treat, who not to treat. They're working around the clock. Many of them haven't left the hospital, partly for safety, but partly because of the just sheer volume. And that's against a background of the bombardment that's going on. They worry about their families. They're exhausted. They're distraught. They must be incredibly traumatised. And how you get over this, I don't know. But the sheer volume of death. We are taught as medics to deal with what we have in front of us, but none of us are taught to deal with this volume of trauma whilst you're trying to provide care to your patients. We also are hearing about medical professionals being caught up and being killed. I had an obstetrician colleague and friend, and she was killed along with her husband, who was an anaesthetist, her father-in-law, a physician, and they were killed because their block of apartments was bombed. What confidence do you have that your plea for a ceasefire will be listened to by the politicians? I think we can only keep asking the voices like ours, which are about the humanitarian crisis, which are not political, which are about the human suffering that is happening. And I think we have a duty to. I don't think we've got a choice. We've just got to ask for that ceasefire to get safe entry for aid and allow its distribution to open those humanitarian corridors equally to get injured people out because they can't deal with the volume that they've got and to let medical teams in to just give some relief. And Omar, you know the situation on the ground there, one of the many tragedies of this horrible conflict is that people who are on the receiving end of this bombardment are much more likely now, one fears, to look at violence as a means to end the conflict in future. Absolutely, there needs to be an end to violence because violence breeds more violence. And this is a vicious cycle that will lead to a lost generation of children, orphan children, on both sides disproportionately in Gaza because the numbers are greater and we've seen that these children will be lost and they will unfortunately grow up to see the other side as the enemy and to kind of add on to Dr Arrington's point earlier is that we just need to keep talking and telling people about what we know but honestly I have very little faith in the politicians I have faith in civil society and in London there were marches of a size not seen since the Iraq war and the WMD's fiasco. There were hundreds of thousands of people on the street in London. It was reported by mainstream media as thousands, which is frankly a joke. And these people are shouting out and they're from all sides. I saw Orthodox Jews, I saw Muslims, non-Muslims, atheists, black, white, every person you can think of was at that demonstration. There were medics, there was a specific medical march calling for a ceasefire. This is the way that people need to voice that to the government and apply pressure and the politicians 
we hope will listen at some point because enough is enough and the repercussions of this are not just short term this is going to continue for years the infrastructure that's been annihilated in gaza will need rebuilding the children who are orphaned will need fostering the hospitals that are damaged will need rebuilding this is a long-term process we cannot just wait and hope that things will be sorted out by our politicians omar thank you very much indeed for your time dr omar abdel manan and dr deborah harrington thank you both for joining us this has been a we bring audio production for the byline times produced by me adrian goldberg and harvey white in birmingham before we go just a reminder that the byline times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the byline times that's our brilliant monthly newspaper which features some of our best online offerings and exclusive content that you can't read anywhere else do please think about taking out a subscription to the byline times head over to bylinetimes.com for more information thank you we'll see you again soon cheers now bye-bye